0: If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting.
1: my kids call that song? The stalker song. (laughs) But there is something compelling about it, isn't there? When you think about it, 312 million people have watched that on YouTube. It is a song that has outlasted decades. It's probably one of the police's best known songs. There's something compelling but something profoundly creepy about it, isn't there? Is this a lover or a stalker? We all have a desire to be known. We crave relationship. We want someone to know us. I think this explains somewhat of our fascination with Facebook updates, with taking selfies, if that's your thing, so you can show people. I was at dinner the other night and there's some... No, actually, The other day I was in the cafe and someone's there taking photos of their lunch so we can actually know that gastronomical side to them. They can share that with their friends. We go out onto blogs and we share our thoughts out into the world. We go to counsellors and we open our hearts because we just want someone to know us. And there is a both, I think, a wonder and a terror of being known. We were made to be known. Back in the beginning of Scripture, Genesis chapter 2, when humanity is made, Adam and Eve are there. I don't know if you remember the phrase, but it says they were both naked and they were not ashamed. There was no shame. There was no fear. There were no barriers. They were fully open to one another. And sin comes in. And what is the first thing that they want to do. They're no longer prepared to let themselves be seen. They cover themselves. They hide themselves away. They shut themselves off from each other and from God. Sin brings terror into that. If these people know me, if God truly knows me, will will I be loved? If you really knew who I was... Would you accept me if they knew your deepest, darkest secrets? Would you be okay with that? So the result is, I think, we end up hiding behind masks. We manufacture our image very carefully. Social media is classic for this. Not often do I read about someone having a, just an ordinary day. Your life is always better than mine on social media. You always look better than I do. Have you noticed that? Because I think it's the same for you. We manufacture, we craft our image, we pay careful attention to how we come across. As teenagers, we're incredibly self-conscious about that. As adults, some of us never grow out of that. We just get better at doing it, at presenting what we think others want to see. And if they think I'm like this, they will love us. They will accept us. But what happens is that we are never actually really known. They know a facade. They know an image. But deep down, we crave to be fully known, to be fully loved. That's what Psalm 139 is about this morning. So let's dive in. David writes, King David, he writes, You have searched me, Lord. You know me. Not you know about me. You know me. You know when I sit, when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down, familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to obtain. God knows David better than David knows David. God knows his thoughts. God knows his words. God knows his actions. There is nothing ever about David and there is nothing ever about us that takes God by surprise. He's never shocked. I never saw that coming. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And what's David's response? It's to praise him. He's not afraid of this knowledge. He's not afraid of the one that knows him oh so well. I don't know if you remember the, f- the film Conspiracy Theory. Has anyone seen Conspiracy Theory? Mel Gibson's a taxi driver in New York and he's got a conspiracy theory about absolutely everything. Uh, and so uh, he, his view on the Gulf War at the time was that it was a result of a bet between the president of America and someone else. Uh, he's got all these conspiracy theories, but one of them is actually right. And that's what the whole film's around. And Julia Roberts is a woman who at one point finds herself in his inner sanctum and she sees a wall that is covered with her life photos of her, information about her, and it completely freaks her out that someone knows her this well. But David doesn't freak out. He's comforted. He's comforted by the knowledge of God. Now, I'm going to give you three big words uh, today for the people who like a big words if you don't like big words just ignore this next bit if you read theology they will call this all knowingness of god they'll call it his omniscience and maybe you've come across that word but that's not where david stops he goes on and he says not only am i fully known i am never alone verse 7 where can i go from your spirit where can i flee from your presence Now David is not being a Jonah here, he's not trying to get away, he's here talking about is there any God-free zone? Is there any place where God is not? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, literally in the grave, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the, night become, uh, the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you and the night will shine like the day for darkness is as light for you. There isn't, there's no God-free zone. There's no place where you could go that God is not with you there a little bit freaky but again incredibly comfortable comforting i don't know if you've ever sobbed into the pillow in the dark of night i don't know if you've ever sat and thought there is no one there is no one that knows me there is no one that loves me there is no one here with me david is saying god knows you. God loves you. God is here with you. You are there with me. He says, your right hand will guide me, hold me fast. This all presentness, big word number two, the omnipresence of God. Omni just means all, so you get the idea. But David continues, not only is God fully knowing him. Not only is God always with him, he's never alone, He is wonderfully made. I don't know if you remember a couple of weeks ago, Ellis took us to Psalm 8. And do you remember Psalm 8? When I consider the works of your hands, the stars and the moon that you've set in place. Here David, because David wrote Psalm 8 too, he goes in the other direction. He looks at himself and he says this, he says, you created my innermost being." You knit me together in my mother's womb. I don't know if you've ever been told by your parents. I've actually probably told two of my children. They were both accidents. Uh, you can work out which ones they were, probably. Um, there's no accidents with God. You may have been told by a parent that you were not wanted, that your creation was not intended. God contradicts that. God created you. God knit you together and he, David praises God because he's fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that for well. I studied human anatomy as part of my first degree. I can remember just looking at the gross structure, gross in many ways because we're looking with dead human bodies, uh, but even the, the macro scale of how intricately we are put together. It is mind-blowing how the human body works. And David praises God because of that my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. The wisdom and power of God is on display. David is studying the design and he praises the designer. It's like great works of art. Michelangelo, I don't know, some of us have probably been across to Rome and walked through the Sistine Chapel, seen David, the sculpture, and just been in awe. That's a lump of marble, that's some paint on a wall. Look at yourself, look at the design. Look at the sun, the moon, the stars that God has set in place. David praises God. Your works are wonderful. How precious are your thoughts, he says in verse 17. Here, this all-powerfulness of God, omnipotence, the last of the big words. I don't know if you felt, though, when Anne was reading it for us, that you'd kind of like David to have stopped at verse 18. Did you feel that? Did you actually feel the transition? Let me read to you from verse 18 and the transition into verse 19. He's there, he says, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God, how vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. This incredible comfort and love... If you only God would slay the wicked, did you see that coming? <laughs> Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. Did you see that coming? What's David doing? Is he had a mood swing? He's gone from happy praise, joy, comfort to judgment. Why? He's praised God for his all-knowing, his all-present, his all-powerfulness. Why now does he go to judgment? Can I say that if you join the dots through those three things, this is a logical conclusion. This is a necessary conclusion. If God, the God that David speaks of as comfort, as love... If God, this God, is all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, it creates a problem for us, doesn't it? Why? Why do things happen like they do? I've been reading some blogs about what's happening across in Syria to people who name the same God that we name. Disciples of the same Lord Jesus that we are. Horrendous things. Why does this happen? This God who is all-knowing, this God that is all-present, this God that is all-powerful, why? That's where David is going. He experiences his own experience. Away from me, you bloodthirsty. He's feeling the threat. He's feeling the threat. He calls for judgment. If you only God would slay the wicked. Do you notice that he actually leaves judgment in God's hands? He leaves judgment in God's hands. Very helpful to know. Even though he was king of Israel, with all the might and power of a nation at its peak behind him, He leaves judgment in the hands of God. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Why do you allow people to hurt your people? Why do you allow people to make accusations against your people? Why do you allow people to drag your name, God, through the mud Surely God, all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, you would want to judge. Can I just stop for a second? This whole idea of judgment. Some of us who are Christians here today, will be uneasy with this. We love the love of God. We love verses 1 to 18. We really wish... Verses 19 to 24 probably weren't there, particularly these two. You could keep the last four, happy with those, but particularly these two. But can I say, Christian, you need the judgment of God. Because if you sacrifice God's judgment, you sacrifice his holiness. You minimize the offense that sin is to him. You take away from his glory and you downplay his grace if god's judgment isn't real what did he save you from why did it cost the blood of the lord jesus christ to save you if judgment isn't real if a sin isn't offensive or it's only just a little bit christian you need judgment But maybe this morning, you're not a Christian. And I want to ask you, if you take moral absolutes out of the equation, if you take God and his justice, his law out of the equation, where does morality come into play? If there's no God that says, this is right, this is wrong, and I will hold you accountable... What does a good life actually look like? Morality becomes a matter of opinion. And morality becomes a power play for those who are in authority. I can force my view on you because I have more power than you. If you want to have morality that's more than just a form of self-righteous abuse... You actually need the judgment of God. I'd love to talk to you about that a little bit more, maybe over tea and coffee. But the great thing about David, he sees the all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful God. He calls for judgment out there, but he knows that he is not exempt. Look at verse 21. Don't I hate those who hate you, Lord? He's actually saying, Doesn't my heart mirror your heart and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them as my enemies. There is a right hatred against sin that destroys, that afflicts, that degrades. Is it not right when innocent people suffer that we hate that they do. That's what David's saying. He says, search me, God, know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Weigh my heart, my motives, my desires. See if there is any offensive way in in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He knows he depends upon God. He depends upon God's leading. He knows that he does not stand on his own merit. He knows that there are offensive ways. He knows that his heart may not line up with God's heart. He asks God to show him his flaws. He knows that he doesn't stand on his own performance. David looks at the all-knowing, all-present all-powerful God and he's comforted. That delights him, that leads him to praise. The fact that God knows him better than he knows himself actually leads him to worship, not to terror. How is that? Because David knows what we should know too that God's people only ever stand because of his love for them. There is never a stay that we can say, look at me, look at what I've done, I've done enough. David knows that the fruit in his life are fruit that God has brought about because not of David's own merits, not of his own performance, but of God's grace and love. And if David knew that, a thousand BC, how much more do we know that because we know that God's promises have met fulfillment in Christ? In the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the covenant that God bound himself to David and to national Israel with is just a shadow of, of the beauty of the covenant that he binds himself to us in Christ. Galatians says it like this, that God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those, to buy them back, those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Adoption to sonship. Not that we might just be let off the hook, but that we might be adopted into his family because you are his sons. Now here the the language is a little bit gender weird uh, for us modern people, but the idea of being a son is to be a full heir. This is mirroring its Roman context and its Jewish context. Obviously, if Paul was writing now, he might have used a slightly different language, but what he is saying to both men and women, you have full status as heirs of God. God sent the spirit on his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Expresses that closest relationship. And listen to this. You are no longer a slave. But God's child. And since you are his child. God has made you his heir. God. God through what he did with Christ adopts us into his family we are his heir and that is the grace upon which we now stand and so his knowledge of us should lead us to praise the fact that he knows our hearts better than we know them ourselves should lead us to delight in his power and his knowledge and his presence. We are, in Genesis 2 terms, naked before him. But because of Christ, there is no need for shame. I don't need to hide away. I can, I can face not only God, but also my own heart, because I know I've been accepted in Him. I am fully known, but because of Christ, I am fully loved. And this, in the last couple of minutes, I just want to explore because it transforms how we see things. As we rejoice in God's love for us, as we wonder and marvel, as David did, at His power. And the beauty of his love, it actually allows us to come out from behind the mask, to stop playing the game, to stop pretending that you've got it all together, to stop manufacturing the image that you think everyone else wants to see, to stop trying to convince yourself that you are the people that you want them to think of you as, it actually allows us to be real. It actually allows us to face the things in our lives, as David did, as he called God to test him, to show him the offensive ways. It actually allows us to recognize that we fall short of the glory of God, but we are freely accepted through his grace. We can face the real us and by his spirit that dwells in us, we can change through faith in the gospel to be more and more and more like Christ. It allows us to be real with ourselves and it allows us to be real with others. Because ultimately, I want you to love me, but if you don't, That's okay, because I am fully known and fully loved by someone who will never turn away. Someone who has given me Christ, and there is nothing that can take that from me. I am his son. I am his heir. He knows me, warts and all, and he loves me because of Christ. Christ. So I can be real with you and you can be real with me and with each other. We can accept each other as we actually really are rather than the the rubbish pictures that we put up. That all they do is block people out and keep people away. Because we've been accepted in God by God in Christ. We can, as he says in Romans 15, accept one another. We've got nothing to prove because Christ has proved everything. So as we go out, rejoice in the fact that he knows you. And if your faith is in him through the gospel of the Lord Jesus, he loves you, what's and all. He understands you in a way that no one else ever will. And he has given you Christ so that nothing can get between you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that although we should be terrified that you know us as you do, we can have the comfort, the comfort that our Father knows us. Our Father who has given us his Son loves us. Who has poured the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, he will never turn us away. Father, we pray that we would take the comfort that David took. But how much more? Because we've seen the fullness of the grace that has come to us in Christ. Help us to know that. And so live real lives, acknowledging ourselves, acknowledging others, accepting others as you have accepted them. And we pray this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.